Well, today we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It's the greatest day in history. Now we're gonna we're gonna do a responsive reading. Uh, Callie kicked that off today uh, in our responses. Um, you don't have to turn on your uh, your audio or your video for this. You can just do this in your home. But as we go through this responsive reading, uh, you guys can all uh, read this out together. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Alleluia. He has defeated the powers of death. Alleluia. Jesus turns our sorrow into dancing. Alleluia. He has the words of eternal life. Alleluia. For our reading uh, today comes from Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now the risen Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene. And she told the weeping disciples that Jesus was alive and what she saw, but they would not believe it. Then Jesus appeared to two of the disciples while they were walking, and they in turn told the other disciples, but they did not believe them either. The angel had said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Well, following that unbelief, Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see For spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, years later, Paul exhorted the Corinthians by reminding them of the historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then Paul says, and if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The very words of Jesus when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Our call to worship today, we're going to read this together, and wherever it says all, you can respond wherever you are. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. To you be glory and praise forever. 
Your steadfast love extends to the heavens and your faithfulness never ceases. Illuminate our hearts with your wisdom and strengthen our lives with your word. For you are the fountain of life and in your light we see true light. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be God forever. Lord of all life and power, who through the mighty resurrection of your Son overcame the old order of sin and death to make all things new in him, grant that we, being dead in sin and alive to you in Jesus Christ, may reign with him in glory, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be praise and honor, glory and might, now and in all eternity. Amen. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad you're all here. It was so incredibly encouraging for us watching all of you people join this morning, and I know we've got a few who have never been with us before, so welcome to all of you who are first-timers. It really is an honor that you have joined us for Easter, and uh, we pray all is well in your household, wherever you're uh, watching in from and listening. We're going to have communion something we've never done. This is a historic event in the life of our church. And I don't know if it's a historic event for you and your family or not, but chances are it may be. We're going to have communion right now. So if you have your elements that you have gathered in whatever form you have it, we're going to have a special dispensation put out on whatever you've gotten because it's the symbol that uh, is not the important thing. It's what it represents. It's the reality of Christ and what he did for us that makes communion special. Worldwide, it's estimated that more than 2 billion, with a B, believers are celebrating the resurrection today. All around the globe, more than 2 billion. Let that sink in for a second. As we're participating, even in this virtual uh, gathering today, we're just one of a whole lot of other people who are celebrating the resurrection the historic real-life resurrection of the real risen Jesus. That's pretty exciting stuff. And many people are going to be celebrating by having communion as well. And that communion is something that has deep significance for all of us. When Jesus was eating with his disciples on that Thursday just before he was arrested, after breaking some bread and handing it to them, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But what is it exactly that we're supposed to remember? Well, of course, we're supposed to remember his death. And in fact, just shortly after that passage, it says, remember his death until he returns again. So that shows us that we're remembering not only the past, but we're looking forward to a future event because he is coming back. But there's more to the memorial meal that I think would be interesting for all of us to know. In the Jewish traditions, they had a lot of memorial meals and When they were remembering, they weren't just remembering for themselves. They were remembering that God remembers them. God was remembering his promises to Israel, his chosen people. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, says Psalm 105. So each time we partake in the bread and the wine, or in our case, juice, not only do we remember Jesus' love expressed through the sacrificial atonement for our sins, but God is remembering his promises to us. His promise to Abraham included the fact that Israel would become a light shining to the Gentiles. Now, I can't see your hands raising because you don't have your video turned on, but I would suspect that if I said, how many of you are Gentiles? 
there'd be a whole lot of hands raised right now. Wouldn't be surprised if it would be all of us, perhaps. Three promises came to us from God that appeared in Genesis chapters 12 through 17. First of all, God promised to Abraham that Abraham would have the title deed to that promised land in Israel, which Mark told us about in the 930 Bible study. It was a great job, by the way, Mark. Uh, I hope that many people got a chance to hear that great overview because you put everything in perspective for us. Secondly, Abraham was promised that he would have a vast number of descendants, so vast that they would be no, more numerous than the sands on the seashore. That's a lot of descendants. And then third, Abraham, through his offspring, would become a spiritual blessing to the entire world. And the way he could do that is through the key descendant, and that person would be the Messiah, and we know him now as Jesus the Christ. So God remembers his promises to us as we're celebrating communion with him. The original context, as you know, for communion was the Passover. It was the Passover feast in which God's children were remembering how God had sent them a deliverer, in that case, Moses, so they could be set free from bondage. Jesus, as he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies related to Messiah, became our deliverer setting us free from the bondage of sin and death and making a way for a resurrection of our own when it comes time for us to join him forever. He became the first fruits, as we read in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. That term first fruits carries with it a double meaning. First, it means that Jesus was the first to be resurrected of many who would follow. Those who will follow will be all of us who have placed our faith, our trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, because we too will have a resurrection. And then secondly, the term first fruits refers to the Old Testament requirement that the first harvest of every crop was to be brought to the Lord as an offering. And Jesus on the cross became that offering. So let's remember these things when it says, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember these things as we celebrate this Easter with more than 2 billion brothers and sisters around the world. First, remember that Jesus' love was poured out on the cross for our sins. Remember that his broken body and his blood was the blood of the new covenant. Remember his resurrection on the third day. Remember that he fulfilled God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants, reaching all the way to us as Gentiles. And remember that he became the first fruits offering on our behalf. And then in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, the word says this. And let's remember that it was because of God's great love that he did all these things. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace that you have been saved. Paul wrote this to give us instructions about communion. So if you'll get your bread and juice ready, he said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Allow me to lead in prayer. Dear God, we remember and we are thankful. You've given us of your love so extravagantly. And the most extravagant gift of all is your son who gave himself to us to save us from our sins. It's hard to imagine the grief of a father losing his son. And yet that's exactly what you did. You've been so unselfish and so incredibly generous, even to those who have turned their backs on you. I pray that those who need to return to you will do so. I pray that they will make their way back into your welcoming arms. I pray that if there is anybody in need of the reminder of your great love, that on this day, they will remember that they can call on you at a time when they need what only you can provide. Draw the lost children back into your fold, dear God. Help them to see that they can find refuge in you and that you alone can offer eternal peace and lasting satisfaction. Thank you for the millions, billions even, who have changed their lives because of your power. May there be millions more as people see you for who you really are, a God who is for us and not against us. In your glory forever and ever, we pray. Amen. Well, Today is Easter Sunday, April 12th, 2020, a day that I'm sure many of us will remember. Hopefully, some of us who are old enough to have grandchildren will tell our grandchildren about it. We already have grandchildren, so they're probably with us in worship right now. Some of you will grow up and have grandchildren. You'll say, remember that time when we celebrated Easter from our homes? That was so different. But I'm praying that because it is different, it will be really memorable in all the right ways. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been hurt and scared and said something hurtful because of how you were feeling? I have, unfortunately. I actually said this in front of my parents' friends when they said, are you going to follow in your father's footsteps and be a pastor? And I said, oh, I will never be a pastor. <laughs> I said that. And I said it so quickly in, in sort of a knee-jerk reaction. And the reason I said it is because I had watched my father giving his life to other people, sacrificially, trying to serve them. And I had seen him being mistreated in a way that I thought was very unfair. And so I was sort of hurt and still smarting from a recent experience when this came out of my mouth. And I know that my parents were probably deeply hurt by what I said, and yet they tried really hard not to show it because they were gracious. But I was actually set free from the guilt from that because God showed me something later, and I found some relief from that. Because I found out that Simon Peter, who also opened his mouth very often, was forgiven by Christ, even though he had said some things that were hurtful and were probably terribly hurtful even to Jesus because he had denied Christ. And I remembered that Jesus was uh, unfairly treated as well, totally mistreated. In fact, he was crucified. And yet, even as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so I saw my father forgive people, even though he was mistreated, and he went on serving for, for his entire lifetime. And that gave me the courage to step into a role that I had once said I wouldn't uh, step into. And here I have been a pastor now for several decades. 
Well, Simon Peter had said, uh, kind of in a bold, brash statement, oh, but Jesus, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Bold words. Wasn't too much longer before he said, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. Same guy, opened his mouth, denied the Lord, probably felt awfully guilty because of it. And yet, we can see a character arc which happened in fairly short uh, amount of time because Simon Peter found hope in a graveyard. Strange place to find hope, but he found it. Same guy, very different outlook. Let's read something that he wrote later in encouraging other believers in some letters that he wrote to some people back then. He said, praise be to, the, to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And the term living hope is important because that's what we're celebrating today is Christ who is alive. It was the living hope. And that's what changed Simon Peter's outlook. He said, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So we know that for those people who place their hope in Jesus, who is alive, we have an inheritance that's being kept very specially for us in heaven, and it will never perish, spoil, or fade. There were some people who used their senses, eyewitnesses, to the resurrected Christ. First was Mary Magdalene. I think it's special that God chose a woman and even a woman who had been an outcast. Mary Magdalene is the one that the Bible tells us Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. And the word seven was symbolic, which meant a lot. It meant that she was completely ravaged and taken over by whatever form of this demon possession, whatever that meant to them at that time. And Jesus had completely cured her of that and given her her life back. She was whole. She was affirmed in his love, and she was okay after that. So she was the first to run uh, to see that grave for herself. And some people would say, well, it's silly that she should go out there. What if the stone was still covering the entrance? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. All I know is that our hearts will lead us to do things even when they don't make sense. And we are so anxious to see people and to see for ourselves. And she loved Jesus more than anybody. So she was the first to get up even before the sun rose on that first Easter and ran all the way out to the tomb, that borrowed tomb from Joseph of Arimathea. And when she got there, though, the stone had already been rolled away. And she was the first to look in and see it was empty. There was no body in there. She ran back to tell the other disciples. And of course, what are they going to say? Oh, thanks for that first person report, Mary. We totally believe you. Nope. They were saying, no, it can't be. So Peter and John were the second to go there, and they went running to the tomb. And it's funny because John is the one who actually wrote about it. And he wrote about it in the third person to say the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that about John. And so John and Peter get to the tomb. John outran him because he was probably a little quicker, maybe a little younger than Peter. But he only stood at the outside. Maybe he was fearful of going inside and being defiled because they weren't supposed to come close to a dead body. Maybe he was just fearful, not knowing what he would find. But Peter, being the brash one, pushes right past John and runs right in to see for himself. So there were two more people that saw, there's an empty tomb. So there were three people right off the bat. They didn't know what it meant yet, but they were trying to figure it out, to process it. And so they were eyewitnesses to the fact that there is no body here. They didn't know what had happened to it just yet, 
but they knew for a fact that there was no body. And then here's just a quick bullet statement list of other people that we see corroborated in scriptures. Uh, there are a couple of different scholars who went through meticulously, and they found that many of these were mentioned that were very early references. And so they've been corroborated and they're historically accurate. Mary Magdalene, as we just talked about, Salome and Mary, the other two women who were hanging out with Mary, there were usually two Marys and a Salome all together in that little group. They were also there at the cross, we read later. Then there were two men at Emmaus on that road when this guy appeared, started walking with them and they didn't recognize him as Jesus at first because they were downcast. They recognized him only when they invited the stranger into their home when they got into Emmaus. And then he broke the bread for them. And in the same uh, situation that they had probably been in with him before or with other disciples, in communion, they recognized him. And then he disappeared. They ran all the way back seven miles, ran all the way back to Jerusalem to share with the other disciples the news. And that's where we know that Peter had been told then somehow doesn't give a lot of details about it, but we know that Simon Peter, after the time he and John went to the tomb and the time these two guys got back from Emmaus later that day, Jesus had appeared to Peter as well. And then there were the 11 disciples. Of course, Judas had hung himself, so they're just 11 instead of 12. And then others, as reported in Luke chapter 24. And then seven apostles at Galilee. That's that great time when uh, they still weren't sure what had gone on yet, they decided to just go back fishing because they didn't know what else to do. So they're on the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus appears to them. Peter says, it's the Lord. So he throws off his cloak, jumps in the water, runs up to see him. And Jesus cooking fish uh, on a charcoal fire. Interesting connotation between the charcoal fire. Then when Jesus is resurrected and appearing to these folks and the last charcoal fire that Peter recalled, and that was the charcoal fire that he was standing by when he denied Christ three times. Just one little sensory thing that, that pops out at you that makes you think, oh, Jesus is such a master teacher. <laughs> he uses everything around him to be able to reveal exactly what he wants to reveal so that it's indelible. And I know that Peter probably never forgot that. He never would have forgotten the three times he denied Christ around the first charcoal fire in the courtyard as Jesus was being flogged. But then he also, I'm sure, never, ever forgot that second charcoal fire when he got to eat with Jesus and he was reinstated. And then it says that there were more than 500 believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Many of those 500, Paul writes, were still alive at the time Paul wrote that, which means it's a very early manuscript. And it was written at a time when he said, many of these 500 are still alive. Go question them for yourselves. You can see for yourselves that I'm not making this up. There are plenty of eyewitnesses for you to corroborate that. And then if you're a Netflix person, they made a movie based on Lee Strobel's experience as well. It goes in not so much to the evidence in the book. It goes in more of the personal conflict that was going on between Lee and his wife. And it's really pretty well done. I mean, it's uh, as blockbusters go, it's a low budget film, but they did a great job. The actors are fantastic. So I highly recommend it. So if you're not doing anything in the next couple of days, I, I would suggest that maybe you want to go to Netflix and find the case for Christ. There's just tons of evidence that will cause you to say, oh, this is not just a, a fanciful mythological legend. There is reason for my faith. It's a reasonable faith. Well, hope is found in very unusual places, like a graveyard, as we just mentioned from John and Simon Peter and Mary Magdalene. But it can also be found in a hospital. 
And there's somebody that we know quite well, and she's going to share with you this morning. I've asked her to do so because her testimony, I think, is extremely timely. That person is my daughter. And uh, Callie grew up and she started getting ready to go with the Peace Corps. And she was all signed up, ready to go to Africa with the Peace Corps. And yet they found out long into the process, they had already accepted her. She was ready to go. She'd even been buying some things for her trip. And somebody recognized that she had some allergies and asthma that showed up in her past from when she was younger. And they had had a scary experience with one of their Peace Corps workers. And they said, we're going to deny you um, access to Africa and with the Peace Corps because we're afraid that if you're eight hours away from a hospital, you might not be where you need to be if you have some sort of an anaphylactic experience. So they, they didn't do that. So she stayed in Michigan and started trying to rethink, well, what am I going to do with my life now? Really good thing. Really good thing that she was not in Africa because she was living with us two and a half years ago. And she came into our room and she'll tell the rest of the story. I don't want to tell her story for, for her, but I'm going to turn it over to Callie and let you share what happened with this strange virus, not the COVID-19 but one that was just as scary and just as unknown when she first started experiencing it. Uh, yes. So today I am going to share with you as briefly as I can manage um, the experience I had with facing mortality and experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. Two and a half years ago, I woke up feeling like I couldn't breathe. It was around 4 a.m., I was laying in bed, and as most millennials will do, I looked up my symptoms on the internet. The symptoms I had were um, stabbing pain in my lungs when I breathed, feeling like there was an elephant sitting on my chest, dizziness, and I had been completely fully asleep before I woke up feeling this way. When the internet didn't give me any answers, I decided to try fixing all of those issues myself. So I came downstairs, my bedroom is upstairs. I thought maybe I had low blood sugar, so I ate some yogurt. I took some aspirin just in case I just was having some chest pains. I was trying to decide what to do next. And I was thinking, can I make it up the stairs? And I realized at that point that there was probably something very wrong. So. I did make it up the stairs and I was going to wake up my parents who have been very gracious in letting me stay with them. Since when we bought this condo, we thought I was going to be moving to Africa, but that didn't happen. So it's a fairly small place, but um, it works for us. So I got up to their bedroom and I woke up my mom and she put her hand on my chest and looked at my face and said, we're going to go to the ER now. Um, So... I, of course, having had childhood asthma, said, well, maybe it's just an asthma attack. So we have an emergency inhaler inhaler in the house, and I took that, and it made it a little bit worse. So um, mom, who had been doing a lot of cleaning and stuff, was like, I'm going to take a really quick shower. Clark, you drive Callie to St. Joe's, which is 10 minutes away at the time that we left, because it was about 5 o'clock in the morning. And um, they checked me right in. They took me back. Um, They didn't think of heart issues because at this time I was 26. So they did a chest x-ray to see if I had an infection of the lungs. 
they did a CT scan to see if I had a blood clot, which if you've ever had a blood clot CT scan, it's very bizarre. They have to shoot the, um, the stuff. Oh gosh, what's it called? Contrast, the contrast fluid. They shoot it through you with pressure and it slips through your veins really fast. And then it settles where you have the most veins and capillaries and all that. So it felt like I peed my pants, but I didn't. They told me that was normal. So I'm not too worried. Um, no blood clot. So then they had me in the ER. At this point, it was probably 9 a.m. So I'd been there for a few hours. I do get low blood sugar sometimes. So I hadn't been able to eat. I uh, hadn't had coffee. So I had a caffeine headache. And mom got there probably before I went to get the CT scan. And uh, they, they were talking about what to do. So I had the doctor who represented me. She was a resident. And then there was the um, big wig doctor who was overseeing the whole ER. And her job was to get my story and relay it to him. And his job was to be, play devil's advocate and guess, give every possibility and then they would figure out what symptoms matched the best. And my room was right outside the main desk. So I could hear the entire conversation they had. And he thought it might be a panic attack. She said, no, this is a very logical person. She came in with a clear list of her symptoms. She has a, an inhaler that's up to date. So she's not a panicky type. So they talked through it all and they decided that maybe it had just been a little minor asthma attack. So they came back in probably about 10 a.m. now and said, they're gonna send me home. And my mom said, not good enough, do more. And she re-explained what she saw, which was that my face was white, my lips were blue turning black, there was no wheezing, no coughing, it didn't seem like asthma to her. So they had drawn a bunch of blood when I first got there and they had taken all but one vial with them. So at this point, they took that vial and ran it. Cause you know, they were like, okay, well that is a little different. Maybe we'll see what's going on. My nurse who was the greatest nurse, well, I had about 12 greatest nurses ever during this. So he was the first of my great nurses. He had gotten my IV put in. So he came back in silently drew three more vials of blood and left and he looked very serious and then about i don't know five ten time is very confusing during this 10 to 30 minutes later the entire team came in and they had this somber look on their face and they said you had a heart attack while laying on this bed and we did nothing and all three of us, because mom and dad were there with me, we were just stunned, shocked. That was the last thing on our radar. But I was so tired and so out of it that I was just like, okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> so what had happened is they ran the final vial of blood and there was troponin in my blood, which is, I think, a protein that's supposed to stay in your heart. So if they find it in your blood, it means that there has been a problem in the heart muscle and it's been released correct me if I'm wrong. So they said, after everything that we have done, you do look like a perfect textbook case of viral myocarditis, which means a virus attacked my heart and it made my muscle inflamed. 
So because they were so terrified that they had let me lay there for hours and done nothing, they wanted to do an echocardiogram because my symptoms by this point were subsiding and they wanted to make sure it was because I was having less symptoms and not because some damage had been done and my body was doing something strange. So they said they were going to admit me, but first they wanted the echo done in the ER so they could make sure I left the ER not in worse shape than I came in. And the echo was actually a pretty cool experience. It's when they do an ultrasound of your heart. So I got to see all my valves pumping and all of the muscles moving and they had different colors on there. So it was a very cool experience. All things aside, you know, I was in, it was a rough time, but that part was cool. <laughs> so then they decided to admit me. And I had the most fantastic admitting nurse. Like I said, I had just every person I worked with was just fantastic. Um, her name was Tanaj. She was Jamaican or from some Caribbean island. And as she was checking my vitals, she put the stethoscope over my heart. And at this point, she probably figured out that we were a family of faith. And she goes, I hear Jesus in your heart. And in his name, we are healed. And that was just the first of many hugs that God sent through his people that were working on earth. And that was a rough night. So during all of this, I continued to lean into that peace that God gives us. But just because you know you have that security doesn't mean you don't have fear. So that night, I was very afraid to fall asleep because the first attack I had happened from a dead sleep. Um, they had put me on the stroke floor because it was the first available room with people trained in heart problems. So I was 26 and the rest of the people on the floor with me were no less than 76 to 80 something years old. So a few different doctors came into my room during the night to see the young girl with a heart problem. <laughs> and my nurse for the night was named Dory. She was my third of the wonderful nurses that I had. She was a really eccentric woman. She had really, really long gray hair braided down her back and it, she could have tucked it into her belt. And she was kind, compassionate. She showed me pictures of her pet turtle. Um, and she's in the right profession, I can tell you that. <laughs> So that night I was finally feeling calmer. Mom was staying with me, dad had gone home. And I told mom I was afraid to fall asleep. And she said, well, we're here. This is where we need to be. You just need to rest. So I did. And about 2 a.m. ish, I had the big episode. So I noticed something felt wrong when I woke up because my IV was painful. And that was the first sign that my um, blood pressure was elevating. So I woke my mom up and she goes, well, call the nurse. And I was like, ah, right, hospital. So I pushed the nurse call sign. We had closed my door and I was staying in the quarantine room, which is kind of ironic now. <laughs> which means the door automatically stays closed and they have to tie it open to keep it open. So Dory came in when she saw I was not looking so great. She tied that door open. She 
called for some assistance. And I think within about five minutes, there were four crash carts in there. I had um, an entire bag of IV fluids pushed through the IV into my system because my blood pressure dropped. It was in that unhealthy low zone where if they didn't get it back up, my organs would start dying. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> um, I was kind of coming in and out of consciousness. So I know they did an EKG. I thanked the nurse who did that. <laughs> and I don't remember much else. I know Dory put a cool cloth on my head and she kept taking it off and putting a new one on there. I know I was sweating, just drenched in my own sweat because my body temperature couldn't regulate itself. So um, I don't know all of what happened, but my mom has filled in some of the gaps there. There was the on-call cardiologist, Dr. Pruitt, and he came in and wanted to send me for a CT scan because he thought I might have a blood clot. But when he found out that wasn't the case, he was like, oh, oh, okay. So he stayed for most of this major episode from what I can recall. I was also on the very end of the hall, which means I was in the room where people would come and take little things that they needed throughout the day. So I was missing a lot of the um, tubes for IVs and things that I needed. So nurses kept sprinting out and sprinting back in. I had, they had to bring in a specialist to draw some of my blood because they wanted to see what was going on, but none of my blood was coming out because my blood pressure was so low. So this lasted for about four hours. And then they were finally able to get my blood pressure back to normal. And Dory stayed with me the whole time. And when everything calmed down and the crash carts left, she came in and put a warm blanket on me. She put a warm blanket on my mom. And then she brought her station in and did all of her notes sitting next to my bed because she was scared for me. And in the morning, I woke up. And on the door, there was a big sign that said fall risk. So apparently in the night, I was deemed to fall risk. Um, and Dory came in before she left for her shift to tell me I had scared her and to not do that again. And that's a little, you know, unnerving. But it gave them information. So they scheduled me for a stress test. They got me in there. They had me do, I got to run on a treadmill. Mom and dad went home and brought me some tennis shoes. And as they were doing the test, they weren't seeing anything too suspicious. But then after the test was done, when I was sitting down, I was wiping all of the ultrasound fluid off because they have to cover your entire torso in ultrasound fluid. And they caught one of the little flares that I was having. I was calling it a flutter because it feels like when your heart skips a beat, but then it leaves you short of breath in my case. And they were like, ah, we see that. Okay. So that was an interesting day because I had started it exhausted from a flare. I was tired from a stress test. I hadn't been able to have full caffeine because I thought I might have a heart condition. So I was eating bland food and no caffeine, but I was being fed and I was given drinks. So that was good. I had a lot of visitors um, that next day and that next evening. On the slide, you'll see I have a little photo of Rachel Buck and my best friend, Allie, who were keeping me company there. The elders came to visit me, which was great because Steve Pipe got 
some of my information and got some good insight there. And my doctor, Dr. Kazanji, she was the internal medical doctor. She wanted to make sure she ran every test possible, test for everything that might be. And they ruled out everything else and officially gave me the um, diagnosis of viral myocarditis. But to know what virus had attacked my heart would require a biopsy of the muscle. And I said, no, that's fine. I don't need to know. Please leave my heart muscle alone. Thank you. (laughs) And they were fine with that. So the night before, when I had had my big flare, they had given me oxygen. They were giving me fluids. They were really intervening. And in order for me to be able to come home, they needed to make sure I could make it through one of these without assistance. So the next time I had one, they did not intervene that way. What they did is they gave me 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, which is an anti-inflammatory, to see how my system dealt with it. And surprisingly, it helped a little. It still was painful and long and exhausting, but I didn't need oxygen and fluids and my blood pressure didn't spike and dip. So that was good news. They still kept me an extra night to make sure everything was safe. So I um, was very thankful when Dory came back in and had requested to be my nurse for that second night because she wanted to be with me. And again, she stayed with me during all of her rounds. She would leave and then come back and take her notes next to me. And I felt like that was another one of God's hugs he was sending through his servants here on earth with God's hands. So I went home with a plan of ibuprofen for pain. That was it. And um, I was basically on bed rest. I had no timeline for when it would be over. There were times of discouragement and sadness. I lost a lot of weight because I had no energy to move when I wasn't hungry. Mom took good care of me, made lots of very healthy foods for me to eat. I had no energy. Taking showers caused flares. Waking up caused flares. What flares are, and we called them flares, they were basically a Charlie horse of the heart. So that inflammation got too much for it to handle because of whatever reason. And it would kind of like seize up a little bit. And it felt, you know, stabbing in the lungs because I was having pleurisy where the oxygen wasn't moving. It was rough. I had about three flares a day for a few months. But I started the journey back to wellness. Um, I slept most of the day for the first few weeks. I had a flare most mornings, sometimes a few a day. When I showered, I would have a flare. Um, But there were people who were lifting me up and supporting me. Michelle and Kelly came and had tea with me. My best friend, Allie, when I was strong enough, would come and drive me to Target in the evening so I could lean on a shopping cart and walk around. My neighbor, Tammy, she was going through her own health crisis and we were sharing books and making healthy food for each other. And then making her banana bread when she finally was in remission. The Steeds, they would bring over Breath of the Wild on the Switch and I would play that and escape into a new world. My cousins, Seth and George, the Vales, they visited and Mike made me birdhouses to paint, which we still have a birdhouse up there. And all of LWCC, I felt the prayers that you were lifting me up every day. And there were people praying near and far. 
Margaret Van Meter is an incredible prayer warrior, and she was on my side the whole time. My mom's friend, Patty, she said she wouldn't stop praying until she was told the, pr- the praise report to stop. So I had prayers from her for months. And day by day, I was getting a little bit stronger. I still couldn't sing. I couldn't work. I couldn't shower without having a flare. But I was getting better. And then in November, I had a relapse where my symptoms shifted. So it went from a few one, two, three flares a day to a constant stabbing pain through my sternum. And that was in about November, I want to say. And my general practitioner doctor said, I was there for a regular checkup and he goes, no, no, you're not okay. I need you to go to the ER. So we called ahead. I went and it had transitioned into pericarditis, which is when the lining around the heart was inflamed. So I mean, that was like good news, bad news, because that means the infection was leaving my body. It was making its way out. But pericarditis has a higher chance of recurrence. So now I have a higher risk of having pericarditis and heart problems in the future, which is another reason why right now it's a little scary because one of the side effects of COVID-19 can be myocarditis, which I can attest to is no fun. So I went to the ER and it was very discouraging, but I kept returning to my safe place in the lap of our heavenly father. And then I finally got to go to church. I went on Christmas Eve. It was genuinely the most perfect, perfect scenario. I couldn't have planned it better or writing for a movie. I couldn't sing along, but I could listen. And I sat in the back and just drank in the community of our beautiful congregation. And I realized how much my love for the body of Christ had grown during this time. Seeing the love poured out to me and my family, I'm getting a little emotional. (laughs) Finally getting a chance to sing on the praise team again. It was six months since I went to church that I got to sing again. And it was just overwhelming because I finally got to use the gift that I feel God has given me, the passion that he has instilled in me to use my voice to lift up his praise. And I got to do it with all of you again. And it was so wonderful because everyone was so understanding. They kept a chair on stage for me in case I needed to sit down and they kept it up there for about two months until I said, I think I'm okay, I don't need it anymore. And I realized how protective I feel of my church. My church is my tribe. You are the people who I feel the most connected to on this whole planet. And together we form that big capital C church of the people who are trying to live like Christ. And I want to be able to keep every one of you safe from everything that goes on in the world, from hurt, from everything even though that's not physically possible. But I want you all to know how much I love you and how protective I am of each and every one of you. And I have never stopped feeling overwhelmed by the love that my church can pour out to me, to everybody. And it, it was during these times of pain that I truly understood that peace 
that surpasses understanding. Because there were times when I would actually be unconscious because the pain was too much for my body to bear, so it would check out. And in those times, I would go hang out with Jesus. I would sit in his lap and I would be safe. Even though there was pain and there was suffering, I knew that I had a safe place to go. He was my hiding place during the pain and he was my strength when I had none. And I was asked to speak at the ladies' tea a few months ago. And in the process, I found this verse, which I realized is my life verse. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all of my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. How perfectly suited to the life I have led is that. So at this point in my life, I have gotten back to what I think will be normal. It's not what my previous normal was. I don't have the same strength and endurance. I have new food allergies and I probably have an autoimmune disorder, but haven't gotten to go meet with a specialist and probably won't for a little while and that's okay. I still have heart flutters once in a while, but they're not causing damage. And actually since speaking at the ladies tea, I can report that I have been officially cleared from my cardiologist. They did a final MRI and there is no damage. My heart is completely healthy. Nothing has lasted. I still have pain, but I no longer have a cardiologist. I mean, I think I technically am still a patient to one, but I don't have to go in regularly unless I have new symptoms. So what I've learned from all this is that there are some things that are just way beyond my control. And that's okay, because I'm not alone ever. God gives me strength, and I trust him. Even when I don't know what the plan is, what my path is, he does. And this is truer now more than ever. As we are faced with a global pandemic, it's so easy to feel out of control. There are days where I feel so overwhelmed and fearful, but I actively bring back these verses which I've been showing you on the slides. And I'm able to rest in the lap of God where I know all is well. I'm thankful for things in my life now. I have a boss that made me start working from home the minute it was feasible because she's worried about the side effect of the myocarditis and wants me to stay away from everything. And I don't have a higher risk of getting COVID-19, but I have a higher risk of having the problematic side effects if I do. So I watch as the world panics, and I pray that this will open the eyes of those who are still blind. Now more than ever, we need to be God's light and shine the hope that only he can offer. I've been hearing people asking, where is your God in all of this? And I see him everywhere. I see him in the sacrificial serving of those working on the front line. I see him in the need for connection people feel and are filling with this technology. And I see him in the generosity of the members of the church, the capital C church, those truly living in the footsteps that Christ left behind for us to follow. And I pray that this situation will be a catalyst for those who are lost to seek the great shepherd and come home into his global family of believers. 
God isn't saying we won't have fear or suffering. He's saying the opposite. But what he is saying is you can trust me. I've got you. I've prepared you for this and I will be with you through it. The end goal of our lives on earth is to be in heaven with God for eternity. We are souls with a body. We're not a body with a soul. Our earthly forms are not eternal, but our souls are. And although the world is full of pain and death, those who have accepted the gift of grace only given by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit know this is not our home. And my heart breaks over and over again for those affected by this virus. But all I can do is leave it in God's hands and know that he comforts those knocking on death's door and is with each and every person suffering. I thank God for his ultimate sacrifice, that he gave his only son to die, that we may live eternally with him. Because Christ rose again on the third day, we will be in the presence of God when our eternal body, when our earthly bodies are finished. And this is the truth that gives me peace. When the world is full of turmoil, my heart may be troubled, but my soul is safe in his keeping. The resurrection has a name. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a doctrine. All of those eyewitnesses had a face and a name associated with the resurrection because the resurrection is Jesus. And if you'd like to place your faith in this same Jesus, I'd like to lead you in a sample prayer. And if you want to say this prayer, if you're in your home, you could even say it out loud. You're not going to hurt anybody. But if you'd like to say it silently, you may. And if you'd like to invite Jesus to be this Lord that Callie has talked about, the one who can give you that peace that passes all understanding, you can say a prayer, something like this. Dear God, you have my attention. You have given me eyewitness, credible evidence of your love poured out for me through Jesus on the cross. I know that I've fallen short, so I know I need your forgiveness. And so forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son, and I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord. From this day forward, guide me. Guide me in my life, in my spiritual journey, in my growth, and help me to do your will. Thank you for your forgiveness, which is poured out so freely, and for eternal life. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you, by chance, would have a question about what you've just heard, or if you've prayed this prayer for the first time, please contact us through the contact page, and uh, we would be delighted to respond to you. Thank you so much for joining us on this Easter Sunday, and happy Easter to all of you.